Defend yourself in your present position. Help is coming to you. Airdrop messages composed by Major General Robert Alexander, Commander, 77th Division, AEF, Argonne Forest, October 4th, 1918. The messages were ultimately undelivered. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 74, The Lost Battalion, part four, Resistance and Relief. Let's begin with some admin and a little love for some of our listeners out there. Patreon shoutouts to Allie, Bill, Michael, and Jack. Thank you for signing up to support the podcast. It is as always, greatly appreciated. No Patreon pitch this time, but it's a great way to support the show. Right now, Patreon listeners have access to an episode of the Battle for Feme and Femet, and we have two episodes out on Tannenberg. A third is in the works. Also, a shout out to listener and Patreon patron Gary who has just been tirelessly sending me these fantastic scans of World War I aircraft. Thank you so very much, Gary. It is greatly appreciated. And the scans are just full of an unbelievable amount of information. I mean, you can really geek out on this stuff. It's awesome. And a shout-out to listener Mike, whom I recently met at the History Expo. Uh, he told me he was uh, taking part in. So... Super cool to meet you, sir. And um, yes, reenacting looks like a lot of fun. And I do feel uh, Newville, Pennsylvania. I'm going to have to at least do it once. I don't know when, but once. Finally, I just want to say that I hope you are all staying safe out there. Everyone. All right. Back to the Charlevoix now. Shortly after the brutal bombardment of the pocket by American guns finally ended in the early afternoon of October 4th, 1918, the besieging Germans wasted no time in trying to maximize this gift they'd been given. They attacked the dazed and battered doughboys stranded on the south slope of Mont Charlevoix. It came with machine gun fire raking the pocket from end to end and then the sound of boots pounding through the woods all around. They hit the northern line just under the binaville apremont Road first, pushing those doughboys back for a few moments. The Americans quickly recovered, shooting down any German they saw and causing a quick retreat there. The Germans pulled back in such a rush they left their dead on the road. The pocket was then hit from the south side, from across the ravine. The remnants of Company E were slammed hard, and the dazed doughboys were bowled over, some being killed and several others captured. The line here pulled back towards the other side of the American perimeter, where the surviving doughboys recovered and counterattacked. 
Private Jacob Rangich made it through the German rush on the southern line. Quote, the Germans came on a mopping up expedition to finish the work, made a counterattack, and captured our lieutenant and 17 privates. With dead men all around, the only cover afforded was by those same dead. When the Germans came over the top, the biggest part of us jumped under the dead ones. The commanding officer tried to burrow under the cold bodies, too. Did so, in fact. But because he had St. Vitus's dance, he was detected and captured. Finally, the Germans left with the prisoners in a hurry. Then, we came crawling out from all the holes and from under the bodies. It seems to me that only five or six came out alive. End quote. Private Rangich was correct. Company E was by all practical measures non-existent as a fighting force. It was during this assault that Lieutenants James Leake and Victor Harrington were both captured by the Germans. They were quickly hustled back to German positions on Hill 198 with other Americans. The taking of two officers promised to be a great prize for the attackers, no doubt. The attack failed to break Major Whittlesey's command, and the Germans faded back into the forests all around the battered and still smoking Americano nest. They had failed yet again, even after the stunning prize of their enemy bombarding their own men. As the survivors in the pocket uneasily settled in for another night of hunger, rain, and sleeplessness, the Americans of Company E taken prisoner that afternoon were brought up to the top of Hill 198. Now, I know little of proper procedures in dealing with enemy POWs, but I do remember from my basic training days that one thing you need to do is separate them right away, usually into groups of officers and enlisted. For a few crucial minutes, the Germans failed to do this. Besieging is about as hard as being besieged, and the Germans surrounding Whittlesey's command in the pocket were as exhausted as their enemies below. So, they got sloppy. In the time they were left alone, Lieutenants Leake and Harrington instructed all of the enlisted men that no one was to say how bad things were in the pocket. They were packed with men down there and well-stocked with food and ammunition. They had just enough time to make sure everyone was on message before the Germans wisely came and took the two lieutenants deep into the dugouts in Hill 198. Inside Hill 198, Leek and Harrington were separated and each one was given hot food and told to make themselves comfortable. After German 76th Reserve Division Hauptmanns Reinhard Bickel and Friedrich Wilhelm von Siebel had their own dinners, they went in and started their interrogations. They were thrilled that they had two officers captured. Finally, they would get some real information on the surrounded men down in the ravine. They started with Harrington. Harrington, however, would have none of it. He was physically a big dude, and when the two German officers entered, the angry look on his face told them exactly who they were dealing with. 
The potato soup they had offered Harrington sat untouched on a table. Lieutenant Victor Harrington, E Company, 308th Infantry, the American lieutenant told them, and the regulations of the Hague Convention do not require me to give you any further information. When Bickle offered Harrington a cigarette and a chance to, quote, talk as gentlemen, end quote, the American simply glared at him. The two Germans quickly realized they would get nowhere with this one. For now, anyway. They tried Lieutenant Leake. Leake had eaten the soup given him, and he took a cigarette when offered. Bickle started with him, and I've got to quote from Rob Laplander's book here. Quote, Your name, the Hauptmann started. Lieutenant James V. Leake. The V is for Fawn, perhaps? No, Vestal, Lieutenant Leake answered. A brief look of displeasure passed across his face that Hauptmann von Sibel picked up on. You are of the 308th Jaeger Regiment, Bickle said, commanded by Major Witzley. A very good troop, but it must be bad for your wounded. From our front lines, we can hear them cry out. Lieutenant Leake let his spoon drop, relaxed, and shifted in the chair to relieve pressure on his wounded leg. James Leake was a lawyer in civilian life, and a very skilled one, a fact belied somewhat by his thick, slow Texas drawl, which led some back home to believe that they were dealing with a simple backwoods hick. Yet that drawl could be a very disarming weapon, and he had learned from it. Smiling inside and letting the crafty lawyer side now take over, the thick drawl came slow with a Texan's natural self-assurance. Yes, that is unpleasant, but for being wounded and seeing others wounded, we will learn to put up with war, he said. You are a philosopher, Lieutenant. That is rare. But do men like yours, surrounded and without food, find war so comfortable, Hauptmann Bickel continued. Lieutenant Leake painted an expression of blank amazement on his face. But we have plenty of food, he said, and then he stopped, as if he had given away a military secret. Bickle leaned forward. Ah, so? And Leake then allowed how they had gotten a big issue of rations and ammunition before starting out on the first. Bickle translated, and Hauptmann von Siebel, standing behind him, nodded slowly looking directly at the American. Enough rations for all two companies? Hauptmann Bickel began slyly, but Lieutenant Leake interrupted and corrected him. Battalions. Two battalions. There was a pause. So, we have other information, Bickel said, relaxed, and muttered something to Von Siebel, who looked anxious. Then it is wrong. We have the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the regiment. Of course, there have been some losses, but I do not think there are less than 1,200 now, he replied easily. New Yorkers, the gangster type, very ruthless and good shots. They will never give up. He glanced up at von Siebel and caught his eye. Never, he concluded, and looked back at Bickel. 
Bickel leaned back slightly in surprise, and von Siebel shot something at him in German. Back and forth they went again as Lieutenant Leake smoked his cigarette. His ruse seemed to be having some little effect. Then, abruptly, he was shuffled out of the room, and Lieutenant Harrington was sent for. If what the prisoner said was true, Hauptmann von Siebel argued, then his own force keeping the Americans bottled up in the Charlevoix Ravine truly was well outnumbered. That would explain the tremendous amounts of withering fire his men had been taking. With that large of a nest of Americans sitting pretty just beyond their own lines, they only needed to wait for the rest of their forces to catch them up. Then this whole stretch of the line would likely crumble. Moreover, if the nest of Americans did rally and counterattack in force to one direction or the other, it did not really matter which, then there would be little his thin line of troops surrounding the ravine could do to stop them. But before any further discussions could be made about what to do, the information must be corroborated for truth's sake. Lieutenant Harrington was brought in and sat down, the sour look still on his face. Hauptmann Bickel started, We have to inform you, we know the true strength of your battalions. Harrington tensed for a moment, almost let a smile slip across his lips, but then caught himself and forced an angry expression onto his face. So, Leek has been giving things away, has he? He snapped and stared hard at Bickel. Then you confirm his statement, the Germans queried. What statement? How many has your major in the ravine? Bickel asked roughly. The dirty American officer now paused, pursed his lips, and then said tightly, Two battalions, 1,250, with plenty of machine gun ammunition, and be damned to you. End quote. Behind the pocket in the Charlevoix Ravine, and behind the shattered front lines in the Argonne Forest, the American army was steadily mobilizing all resources towards the support and relief of Major Whittlesey's forces. At Remicourt, 30 kilometers south of Vienne-le-Chateau, the pilots and ground crews and command staff of the American 50th Aero Squadron went to work directing all efforts towards the men in the Charlevoix. The first mission was to locate exactly where they were, as Whittlesey's coordinates from the 4th weren't being completely accepted as accurate. Knowing they were likely in Charlevoix Ravine, however, packages of ammunition, food, chocolate, and cigarettes were being put together to be dropped from the squadron's planes as they flew through the ravine. Separate baskets containing pigeons and fitted with flare parachutes were also being put together, and all of the bundles contained Major General Alexander's message, this episode's opening quote, inside them. But it was hard going. The weather was persistently foggy, and the pilots and observers were looking for cocky-clad men in a foggy, dark green and brown forest. It was an exceedingly difficult task, as evidenced when Lieutenants Robert Anderson and Woodville Rogers dropped a basket of pigeons into what they thought was Whittlesey's position. Unfortunately, they were eight kilometers off the mark. 
Lieutenant Samuel Fitzsimmons and Charles Persley later flew their DH-4 into the Charlevoix and thought they were over the right spot when Persley dropped all of the packages crammed into his observer's seat. They all landed straight into the hands of waiting German soldiers, who promptly gloated loudly to the surrounded Americans how good everything tasted. A little south on the front line, the skeletal remains of the 308th Infantry Regiment continued slamming into the German defenses in the Havan d'Argonne. Now commanded by an FNG-type captain named Breckenridge, Colonel Stacy having been relieved for cause, the decimated companies of sometimes just 30 men continued trying to break through the German wire and machine gun fire to get through to Major Whittlesey. The Germans wouldn't budge, no matter how many shells hit their line. Brigadier General Evan Johnson, the 154th Brigade commander, stepped in to personally lead the troops into the shattered forest and fight it out with the enemy. The morning of October 5th dawned in the typical Argonne style, rainy, foggy, and raw. The torn hillside and ravine bottom gently and ever so quietly rustled with activity as small patrols of haggard men went out on their short missions. Over at the medics area, behind a growing mud-covered wall of corpses made to protect those still living, the wounded moaned, cried, and some died. Everywhere else, men shifted uncomfortably in their holes, rifles at the ready. The condition of the doughboys in the pocket was becoming one of deepening concern. From Finding the Lost Battalion. Quote, Many men were sick, though illness could be a weird sort of blessing, for it brought on quicker exhaustion and blessed sleep which was almost impossible otherwise. Some, who had not been out of their muddy holes in two or three days, were starting to have trouble with their feet as well, similar to what had happened on La Morte. Dry socks had long ago disappeared, and boots stayed wet through almost constant immersion in the wet slime that lined the bottom of most all funk holes. Since they could rarely get up and walk around to keep blood circulating through their extremities, men began developing trench foot, a horrible flesh-rotting disease similar to gangrene. A few who did take their boots off to try to dry their socks and rub their feet were horrified to discover that their feet immediately swelled up alarmingly. Then they suffered the agonizing process of trying to force their feet back into their boots if they could get them back in at all. Fingers were also affected. Skin, filthy, wrinkled, and tender from the constant exposure to moisture, cold, and gas, split at the slightest blow or brush with a sharp stick or rock. With nothing to tie up wounds or keep them clean, infection quickly set in. Additionally, pleurisy, bad colds, some influenza and the makings of pneumonia from constant exposure to the elements for ten days in the forest with no hot anything, food or otherwise, were also beginning to seriously affect some men, as was dehydration. 
The constant wet weather was wreaking real havoc with the gassed men as well, and their wheezing and snuffling just to get breath was a disgusting and discouraging sound. Most men also had body lice, as well as nervous stomachs that, combined with the scarcity of water that made brushing teeth impossible, left many with a mouthful of painful sores. It was getting to be an effort just to wake up, when one could sleep, end quote. Water was at a premium. Although the Charlevoix Brook was just 30 feet away, Major Whittlesey designated only a few men quick on their feet to fill canteens. The stream was ruthlessly covered by German marksmen who promptly dropped any doughboy who attempted to defy Whittlesey's orders. Private Roy Lightfoot of Company C could attest to this. Quote, It was worse when you crawl down to the foot of the hill after water, dead bodies all around the water hole, and the water had lots of blood in it. But it tasted good anyway. End quote. To highlight the water scarcity, Charles Whittlesey's face now had several days' worth of beard growth on it, and it was getting dirtier by the day. This is an example of leadership on Whittlesey's part. Water was at such a premium that not even he, a man and officer who believed in discipline and keeping up appearances, would waste water on such trivial notions right now. Food, of course, was long since non-existent. It was now the third full day of being in the ravine, and things were dire. Again, we'll quote from Finding the Lost Battalion. Quote, The lack of food was next on the list of miseries that continued to rapidly reduce the effectiveness of command. While the atrocious smell of the polluted corpses and infected wounds actually helped drive away the appetites of those closest to them, for those farther away, the ravenous hunger pains led to radical steps. Many tried eating the occasional handful of cleaner-looking grass or weeds, and some chewed tree bark, while others tried eating leaves or twigs. However, the after-effects were less than desirable terrible stomach cramps, and uncontrollable bowels. Many had entered the ravine already with a case of diarrhea, brought on by the strain and poor diet of those initial days of the advance. Now, this desperate diet combined with the almost unending nervous strain of the first days in the pocket to exacerbate the situation. The lack of accessibility to the latrine holes added greatly to the misery of that sickness. With no other choice, men were forced to remain in their funk holes or simply urinate or defecate into their breeches, thus adding to the already putrid smell of the hillside and the slime lining the bottom of most funk holes. Along the bottom of the hill, the wounded, and many too hurt to move, also had no choice and were thus forced to lie in their own filth as well as the filth of those around them. This included dying men, who had a tendency to relax their bowels and bladder as they slipped away. All of this led to an increase in the serious infections that the three impotent medics were powerless to treat. End quote. With all of this, it was inevitable that morale would begin to crack. Whittlesey heard more and more grumbling 
as he made his rounds within the perimeter. The morning attack planned by the Germans was stopped by two intrepid pilots who flew another run over the ravine. Drawing a wall of enemy fire on their plane, Lieutenants William Frayne and Howard French fired off flares that called on American artillery to drop shells right on top of them. The shells came in right on target for once, right on top of Mont de Charlevoix, and the forming troops were either blown to pieces or scattered. The attack was halted. And folks, this scene does no justice to the events as described in the book Finding the Lost Battalion. Seriously, pick up a copy of the book. The Germans didn't quit, however, and the afternoon attack came with a vengeance. They opened it up with a curtain of machine gun fire that raked the surrounded doughboys from one end of their perimeter to the other. It was an unprecedented level of fire. Everyone hid as deep in their holes as they could, and even Major Whittlesey was seen long jumping into his command hole on the hillside. It was after this jump that, in his always correct style, still crouching in the hole, he turned over to Captain George McMurtry and said, annoyed, most unpleasant. The Germans began as they usually did, by throwing grenades into the pocket ahead of them. The doughboys at the edge of the position were momentarily stunned. The men behind them fired right over their heads at the oncoming Germans, sending them back. The attack focused on the right of the pocket, where Captain Nelson Holderman and the men of his Company K, 307th Infantry, held the line. Holderman, by this time wounded multiple times and walking with the help of two broken rifles, led a charge against the Germans when they temporarily broke into the American position. Barely able to stand upright, Holderman blazed away with his pistol as he pushed forward with a handful of his troopers. Sensing they were getting nowhere here, the enemy shifted their attack to the center of the position. There, Lieutenant Gordon Shank led and directed his men in holding his position, and with fire coming from Lieutenant Cullen's doughboys on the left, they shot the attack there to a standstill. As evening approached, the Germans broke off once again and melted into the darkening forest. Behind the main front line, just south of Charlevoix, Major General Robert Alexander, commander of the 77th Division, had a visitor show up at his command post. It was none other than the 300-pound hulking figure that was the 1st Corps commander, Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett. Liggett was there on orders from the very top, from General John J. Pershing himself. This business of the cut-off battalions out ahead of the lines, it needed to be resolved. Liggett informed his subordinate division commander. Alexander agreed and stated he was driving his troops relentlessly forward to break the German line. Liggett understood, but he explained that if Major Whittlesey and his command were destroyed, or if they surrendered, it would be a morale and public relations disaster for the American Expeditionary Force. Pershing wanted every single soldier 
that could be made available to be driven forward in attacks to reach the men in the Charleville Ravine. At the same time, Pershing was willing to break his generally most inviolable rule. Messages were to be airdropped to Whittlesey. These messages were to order him to break out and attack towards his rear. Pershing was allowing the cut-off soldiers to retreat back into American lines. Liggett confirmed it. The German line was to be broken not to push forward, but to allow Whittlesey and his men to escape back into American lines. The story of the Lost Battalion was already breaking thanks to Lieutenant Kidder Meade, the AEF First Corps' press officer. Meade had been following the information he'd been receiving out of the Argonne about a cut-off command of the 308th Infantry, and he passed on the story to a universal press reporter named Damon Runyon. Runyon fired off a cable to his editor back in the United States, and within hours received the message that named the whole incident. Quote, send more on Lost Battalion, end quote. On the other side of the wire, the German army and Major Manfred Hunneken, commander of the 254th Infanterie in particular, were having yet another bad day. On the Aragon front, the Americans had pushed deep up the Air Valley to the east, and the line there was coming unhinged. Army Group Argonnen was given a warning order to prepare to evacuate their current positions and retreat north to the Kriemhildestellung positions. Major Hunneken received this news on top of the fact that for yet another day his soldiers had failed to clear the nest of Americans down in the Charlevoix Ravine. Hunneken needed help, and he received promises that elite Sturmtruppen were on their way to help. The ravine became an ever busier hive of activity the next morning. German machine gun fire again raked the pocket from one end to the other, with trench mortar shells crashing in and among the dirty foxholes of the starving Americans. Major Whittlesey and his remaining officers, only a few left now, did their best to rally the men, carefully moving throughout the position while under fire to keep their men in their holes and alert for the next possible attack. Whittlesey constantly tried to provide reassurance to his men about being surrounded. He spoke of two million doughboys just over the hills behind them, trying to break through to them. Many doughboys, especially the replacement men who didn't know the major well and so didn't form any attachment to him and his firm but fair leadership style, were beginning to doubt his sentiments. Many were beginning to feel hopeless at their situation, that they would not be coming out of this festering hole in the woods alive. But the planes flying low over and in the ravine were a sure sign that someone out there still knew they were there, or at least they were looking for them. The planes were coming in dangerously low and slow, dropping packages out of them in an attempt to resupply them. None of the packages had yet landed inside their perimeter, 
and none ever would. But it meant the rest of the army still believed they were out there and alive. And that morning of October 6th proved that once more. The 50th Aero Squadron was sending out their big DH-4s as soon as they could be fueled and loaded up with packages for Whittlesey and his men. The first plane flying out that morning before 6 a.m. was crewed by Lieutenants Gottler and Blackley. Lieutenant Harold Ernest Gottler was already considered an old man at the mature age of 28 in his squadron, and his nickname was thus Dad. Gottler was a big boy of German stock, blue-eyed and blonde-haired, and a former football and basketball player during his days at the University of Chicago. When the Great War had erupted in Europe in the summer of 1914, Harold Gottler had actually gone to the German consulate in Chicago to sign up for the German army. The consulate staff, however, told him that the war would be a short one, and by the time he got over there, it would be over. By April 1917, Gottler no longer looked so happily at the country of his ancestry, and he signed up for the U.S. Army Air Service. He explained his reasons for joining the Air Service as, quote, It's you against the other fellow, just like any football game. And if things go wrong, you don't come back home without an arm or a leg. You just don't come back home. End quote. Dad Gottler proved himself a steady pilot, devoid of theatrics, and he was a steady rock in the squadron. His observer was Lieutenant Irwin Russell Bleckley, a 23-year-old former banker out of Wichita, Kansas. Black, as everyone called him, had signed up for the military right away and joined the 35th Division. In March 1918, he found a faster way to get himself to the action by signing up to become an aerial observer, and after his training in France, was teamed up with Gottler. Bleck was a good observer, and good on the Lewis machine gun fitted to the plane, and together the two made a great crew. That morning, Gottler flew up to Vienne-le-Chateau, on the west edge of the Argonne, and then north to Binarville. Once above the shattered village, he turned east towards the Charlevoix Ravine. Aiming now at the Charlevoix, Gottler lowered his altitude to just 300 feet, just over the ground fog. As the DH-4 roared into the ravine, the Germans aimed almost every weapon they had at the low-flying plane. Gottler and Black could feel the wooden frame of the plane taking thwacks as bullets punched into it, and they could see the holes appearing in the fabric over the wing frames. But Gottler kept flying through it as Black frantically consulted his map to confirm they were in the right spot. They made several passes, with the two flyers noticing that at one point the hills were above their wings, meaning they weren't over the Charlevoix. They were in it. Blackley fired flares, hoping to get a response from the sea of foggy green and brown below. Nothing. He could see the little stream in and amongst the trees on the ravine floor, but no sign of anything. Bullets smacked into the plane again, this time close. But then, there, 
Blackley caught a flicker of something white below, something that stood out from the other colors. It wasn't just white, it was waving too. That was unnatural, and that meant someone was signaling. Blackley hurriedly dropped all of his packages over the side, hoping they landed in the right place. Then he swung his Lewis gun around and poured fire into the hillsides where he saw muzzle flashes. It was all they could do for this trip. The plane headed off to the west, with over 40 bullet holes in it. Miraculously, both pilot and observer were untouched. Elsewhere, as the dawn sun filtered through the fog and clouds, the AEF First Corps resumed its battering ram operations against the German lines in the Argonne. The 77th simply ran headfirst at the enemy as they had been doing since the morning of the 26th of September. To their right, the 28th Pennsylvania Division was grinding through Le Chantendu, making slow progress. To their right, the 1st Division was biting deep into the Air Valley, pushing brutally past Flayville despite thousands of casualties. Now, a brigade of the Reserve 82nd Division was being brought up. Placed between the 28th and the 1st, this brigade would aim west and punch right into the eastern edge of the Argonne. It was time to break the German line clear through. Having landed their well-ventilated plane back at Remicourt, Lieutenants Gottler and Blackley got themselves ready for the next run. Squadron command and the commanders within the 77th Division were beginning to doubt whether Whittlesey and his men were still there. The French around Binarville, having no basis of fact, were saying that Whittlesey and his men were gone, surrendered, or destroyed. While most American commanders batted this aside out of hand almost reflexively, no one had heard from Whittlesey since the afternoon of the 4th, two full days ago now. Only Black had seen anything, and no other crews during the following flights that morning had seen anything. Lieutenant Gottler now proposed an idea to his best friend, Lieutenant David Beebe, who would be flying behind him that afternoon on yet more flights into the Charlevoix. In the U.S. military, there is, or at least was, a way of locating the enemy called reconnaissance by fire. This is where, say, you approach a wood and you don't know if it's occupied, so you fire into it. If something in the wood explodes spectacularly, or if suddenly the wood starts shooting back at you, well, there you go, reconnaissance by fire. What Gottler proposed was a rather reverse reconnaissance by fire. Rather than the American planes going in with their machine guns blazing, they would fly in low and draw enemy fire. If the hillsides erupted in incoming fire and the ravine floor did not, then they could reasonably assume that Major Whittlesey's command was still there on the ravine floor. Lieutenant Beebe thought the idea insane, especially as several crews were already missing, but it was probably the only thing left to try. As Gottler and Bleckley prepared for takeoff a short time later, another lieutenant wished them luck. Bleckley yelled out, Don't worry, lieutenant. We'll find him or we won't come back. And when someone says that, 
you know how this story will end. The two men took off in their DH-4, rolling off the field at Chemikor and heading north to the Charlevo. Once north of Binarville, Dad Gottler turned east towards the ravine. Once Black gave him the sign, he flew around Hill 205 and aimed down into the Charlevoix. Gottler brought the plane down to just 200 feet and slowed his engine down enough just to keep it from stalling out. A fury of rifle and machine gun fire rose up to meet them. Nevertheless, Lieutenants Gottler and Blackley flew over the ravine back and forth as they drew a storm of hostile fire. Near Binaville, an American Field Service ambulance driver named William Ettinger watched the flight of the two men. Quote, The afternoon of October 6th, 1918, I was standing in the doorway of a dugout, watching a plane which was flying parallel to the lines at about a hundred meters above them, or even less, at what looked to be a particularly unsafe and low altitude. Standing with me were a couple of Frenchmen, stretcher bearers, and we were discussing the probable identity of the plane as none of us had ever seen an American plane before. Neither, evidently had the French anti-aircraft gunners around there because both the French and German machine guns were giving him a great reception. Although subject to a constant and terrific firing from all sides, he continued, undisturbed, to fly up and down the line without, to us, any apparent objective, as he was not shooting up the Bosch trenches and did not seem to be directing artillery fire, but on the contrary was drawing everybody's fire for some distance round. He seemed to be patrolling a sort of beat. He then dropped some day signals, a row of smoke balls of some sort, which had the effect of decreasing the French fire, but redoubling the Heine's efforts. He continued that patrol, certainly a cool customer, until finally the plane, still at a very low altitude, dove head first to the ground. Three or four Frenchmen and myself reached him a couple minutes after he hit, end quote. Ettinger and his French comrades ran to the shattered wreckage of the big plane to find Gottler, long since dead from a bullet that took off much of his head, and Blackley grievously wounded, but still drawing breath. The American man loaded Black into his ambulance and raced to an American hospital at Vie d'Alcourt near Saint-Menu. Ettinger just wasn't humanly fast enough, however. Blackley breathed his last as he was taken out of the back of the ambulance. For their superhuman courage in conducting their last flight into the Charlevoix, Lieutenants Harold Gettler and Erwin Blackley would later earn posthumous medals of honor. Lieutenants David Beeb and Daniel Brill, Beeb's observer, came into the Charlevoix a few minutes after Gottler and Blackley. They, too, were chewed up by fire as Brill tried to mark enemy positions on his map. Beeb pulled them out as soon as Brill dropped his packages over the side. Gottler and Blackley were nowhere to be seen in the sky. Beeb flew back south to Habicor, landed his shot-up plane, and was asked a breathless and heavy question by Lieutenant Daniel Morse, the 50th Aero Squadron commander, where's dad? Dad. 
down in the pocket, now largely denuded of branches and brush and other cover, but scattered with body parts, dried blood, mud, and human waste, Major Whittlesey could sense that his men were just barely holding on. Already, there were reports of men just up and walking out, in ones and twos and more, willing to take their chances on trying to slip through the iron ring of the Germans around them. He and the remaining men could also sense that the Germans were preparing for something big all around them. They were correct. On the German side, two big things happened. Orders to withdraw from the Giselherr Stellung positions within 36 hours had come down from higher. Major Hunneken was given that time frame to destroy the Americaner nest, and he was given help, if that's what you could call it. 16 Sturmtruppen on loan from the fighting in the Air Valley to the east. At least they had two Flammenwerfer flamethrowers between them. It came at 2.30, when the Germans opened up on the pocket with every machine gun they had. Trench mortar shells sailed into the American position, where every doughboy desperately hunkered down in his foxhole. When the mortar shells stopped and the grenades came flying in, they knew the infantry attack was now coming. On the right, in Captain Holderman's sector, there was something new. Suddenly, Long jets of roiling, searing flame roared out of the woods and into the American lines. Flamethrowers. As if this place wasn't already hell on earth. Private Ludwig Blumseth of Company G was hit by one of the devilish weapons. Quote, The Germans shot liquid fire over, and I was forced to leave my guard post. My coat was on fire, and as I ran to safety, I turned to see if my partner was coming and fell into a hole and decided to stay there. We tried to extinguish the fire by rolling on the ground. However, some of the men were so badly burned, they died. End quote. As the Germans pushed at several points of the American perimeter, something in the doughboys snapped. The ragged Americans stood up in their holes, as if on command, and silently coldly and methodically fired at any German soldier who showed himself. One of the flamethrower men had his fuel tank hit, turning him into a human torch that writhed amongst the trees. That wasn't all. After the men got out of their foxholes completely and began advancing without any given orders and then began chasing the Germans, the Americans seemed to have no regard for their own safety. They seemed almost suicidal in their furious rage. It broke the attack, and the Germans quickly fled. From there, some of the men went back to their holes and collapsed, utterly worn out to the bone. Shortly after the attack, one of the wounded officers sent Charles Whittlesey a note suggesting they arrange some sort of truce or something with the Germans. They had put up a good fight, but for the sake of those still living, it was time to give in. It was happening, Whittlesey knew. The men snapping during the attack, and now the open suggestion of surrender, from an officer, no less, fairly screamed at him 
that he did not have much time left in which he would be in control of these soldiers. But one thing at a time. Whittlesey spoke to the officer calmly, explaining why they could not even entertain such a notion. While the officer seemed to come around to his view, Whittlesey nevertheless hardened and said, There will be no surrender. Whittlesey then gave orders to shoot anyone who was making to surrender or who showed signs of surrendering. Uh, by the way, I'm not telling you this officer's name on purpose. Uh, you've got to go by finding the lost battalion to find out who said it. Seriously, you should buy the book. We have but a few acts left in this terrible play now. By the morning of the 7th, several men had had enough. Some had seen one of the packages land just outside the perimeter, and they were long since past the point of desperately needing food. The survivors inside the perimeter no longer had the strength to bury the dead around them. There were few men who could go out on even short patrols. They were all just worn out. A group of nine young men, mostly recent replacements inspired by Private Emil Peterson, but led by a Native American private named Robert Dodd, slipped out of the Company H perimeter as silently as they could and headed off toward the suspected drop area of one of those airdropped packages. Among them was an 18-year-old former supply corporal turned infantry private on account of a request to transfer and see action, named Lowell Hollingshead. The party made it across the brook on the ravine floor, and then some 400 meters into the brush beyond. A German machine gun up ahead on a trail opened up on the racket doughboys once the young men were all in file. Three of the Americans were killed almost instantly, and the rest wounded and captured. Private Hollingshead, shot through the left thigh, was dragged along with the others, up Hill 198. The men were separated after a time, with Hollingshead brought into a dugout inside the hill. Here, his wound was bandaged carefully, and a German officer introduced himself to him and offered him food. The officer was Lieutenant Fritz Prinz, the German 254th Regiment's intelligence officer. Prince was especially suited for the task of interrogating the new American prisoners as he had lived in Seattle and Spokane, Washington for a total of eight years before the war had started. Prince had grown very affectionate of the United States and only the sense of duty to the fatherland had sent him home when the war started. He was fine fighting the French, but when the Americans joined the war on the Allied side, it pained him. Handsome and with a genuine personality, Prince let the starving doughboy have his fill and then started in on questions and a request. From Finding the Lost Battalion, we have the conversation. Quote, No, sir, I will not tell you a word. Hollingshead simply repeated again and again to each question. His leg throbbed, and he could tell that the other two Germans were starting to lose patience. What 
state do you hail from? Lieutenant Prince suddenly asked offhandedly. This was a different track, and Hollingshead told himself to be careful. Ohio, sir. Oh, yes, I have been there, to Cincinnati. In fact, I was in business in your country for six years before the war. Washington State, beautiful country up there. The German looked tired, Private Hollingshead thought. Look, we already know all about your command there in the ravine, you know. Even that the French have dropped the Honor Cross Award to your commander by airplane, Lieutenant Prince said slightly smugly. Then he said, I admire the courage of those men on the hill, and I feel sorry for them. Look here, end quote. Hollingshead was led outside, given a pair of binoculars, and shown the pocket. There was no missing the devastated area, but Hollingshead played dumb and said he couldn't see anything. Prince went along with it. Quote, I can hear the screams of your wounded clear over here. I know they are dying, he said. It is a terrible thing. Hollingshead allowed that it was much worse when they were your friends and you were right up beside the screaming and dying. The German now looked Holly in the eye uncomfortably. I am your enemy. But can we not act like human beings? I guess we could, Hollingshead replied warily after a short pause. Prince paused briefly, still stared intently at the boy, and then leaned in as if in earnest. I've written a letter to your commanding officer, asking him to surrender, he began, handing Private Hollingshead the note he had typed. He has... No means of escape anyway, and it seems horrible to kill so many brave men. I offer him this one chance. I want you to take it back to him. If I do this, you must put in the letter that I do so strictly against my will, Hollingshead said finally. Done, Prince said, and took the paper back. End quote. Prince typed out the letter while Hollingshead rested for a bit. When the young American was ready, Prince gave him the letter and had an orderly take him out of the dugout. In short order, Hollingshead was blindfolded and led downhill 198 to the wagon road, far to the right of Captain Holderman's sector. He was given a white flag that was to be kept high. The remaining Germans all around had been instructed to hold their fire. They were to let this kid walk back into the American position. Lowell Hollingshead was suddenly alone on this road, in some godforsaken forest, in godforsaken France. He stumbled forward on the road, heading west. There were sounds of battle in the not-too-distant distance. Neither Hollingshead nor the rest of his fellow Americans knew it, but for days the right front of the 307th Infantry had been quietly filtering men through a break in the German wire. Today, the numbers had grown to the point where they could launch a flanking attack on the beleaguered Germans, and the rest of the 307th had broken through. Yes, the 307th Infantry had broken through. Tired and gaunt doughboys were already beginning to push across Hill 198. 
They were already less than 500 meters from the pocket, but there was still a wall of German soldiers standing in the way. But it was happening. That wall of Germans was thinning as well. Orders to evacuate had come down. These were no longer warning orders. These were orders. It was time to start pulling back to the Kriemhildestellung. Private Hollingshead trudged on, his white flag falling lower and lower as he went. He was just so tired. But he had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Quote, Halt! He had gone about a hundred meters, perhaps a little more, when the command came sharply from somewhere in front of him. It was distinctly American. Hollingshead froze in his tracks, and suddenly his body tensed with alertness, all the tiredness seemingly drained from his very being in a burst of pure adrenaline. I've just come from the German lines, and I have a message for the Major, he finally managed to call out to the unseen voice, his eyes wide. Who are you? The Yankee accent was definitely unmistakable now. Private Hollingshead, Company H, he answered. Yeah, let's see that message, the voice demanded. I can't. It's from Major Whittlesey. There was a rustling and muttering of voices in the brush ahead on the right. Peering hard, Hollingshead could just make out the shape of American helmets and faceless heads through the meager foliage and the descending afternoon shadows. Wait there. Don't you move warned the unseen voice. There was more rustling on the hill. Hollingshead shifted slightly, but otherwise did not move, the flag hanging out in front of him motionless. Shortly, a second voice, he supposed an officer, called to him, demanding to see the message. Hollingshead again refused, repeating that it was for the major and no one else, and once more identified himself. Bring him in and we'll take him to the major, he heard the second voice order. End quote. One of the doughboys went and grabbed Hollingshead. He was dragged back into the pocket roughly and shortly brought to the command hole where Major Whittlesey was crouching. Crouching down as well, the young private introduced himself. Quote, Sir, I am Private Hollingshead of Company H. I have been captured and sent in by the Germans with a message for the commanding officer. End quote. Hollingshead pulled the letter out and handed it over to Major Whittlesey. Whittlesey opened the envelope, pulled out the letter, and read it. Quote, to the commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion, Jaeger Regiment 308, of the 77th American Division. Sir, the bearer of the present, here Hollingshead signed his name, has been taken prisoner by us on October, the date was left blank. He refused to the German intelligence officer every answer to his questions and is quite an honorable fellow, doing honor to his fatherland in the strictest sense of the word. He has been charged against his will, believing in doing wrong to his country, in carrying forward this present letter to the officer in charge of the 2nd Battalion Jaeger Regiment 308 of the 77th Division, with the purpose to recommend this commander to surrender with his forces, as it would be quite useless to resist any more in view of the present conditions. The suffering 
of your wounded men can be heard over here in the German lines, and we are appealing to your human sentiments. A white flag shown by one of your men will tell us that you agree with these conditions. Please treat thee again here, Holly had signed his name, as an honorable man. He is quite a soldier. We envy you. The German commanding officer. End quote. Whittlesey folded the letter, and shortly afterwards, Captain George McMurtry came in. McMurtry read the letter, and at that moment, Major Whittlesey gave Hollingshead an ass-chewing he would never forget. Men were gathering slowly around the command hole. Clearly, something was going on. Captain Nelson Holderman staggered over in a crouch, as everyone did to avoid German marksmen. Holderman read the letter. Then he looked at Whittlesey and McMurtry and smiled. He knew exactly what the letter was about. He then said, They're begging us to quit. They're more worried than we are. Slowly that dawned on Whittlesey and McMurtry as well. Whittlesey supposedly yelled out for the Germans to go to hell loud enough for them to hear, but this just isn't true. That wasn't his style. He simply and quietly ordered all of the signal panels brought in, so there was no mistaken messaging. Just as he had said, there would be no surrender. The waiting Germans saw no sign from the Americans that they would be giving up. What Lieutenant Prince saw or thought, we do not know, but it must have pained him. He couldn't stop what came next. The Germans attacked at 1700 that evening. It started with machine guns and showers of potato masher hand grenades exploding everywhere. The doughboys were hit on all sides at once. On the left flank, Lieutenant Red Cullen organized his remaining men around the last surviving Hotchkiss machine gun. Cullen watched as his men fought like machines, working together, aiming, and making every shot count. And then, when the Germans broke into the perimeter, the doughboys snapped again. They actually stood up and walked towards the Germans. For brief moments, they actually stood meters away from each other, working their rifle bolts as they shot each other down. Off to the right, the flamethrowers came back. A sergeant turned the last Hotchkiss on the right and opened up as soon as he had a bead on the flamethrower men. Captain Nelson Holderman and his remaining officers and NCOs did their best to encourage the men, not that they needed to. They instantly turned into cold-hearted killers. Pumped by the rejection of the German surrender letter, they had a last burst of energy to deal with this latest attack. Holderman, for his part, stood with his men, leaning on a shattered rifle stock and pumping 45 rounds at any enemy soldier who presented himself. From a short distance, Whittlesey watched Holderman fighting like a tiger and was amazed. The German attack went nowhere, and with it went their last chance to destroy the surrounded Americans. There would be no other chances although the Americans did not know this. The German decision to steadily fade into the trees like ghosts was what saved them, because the doughboys 
had nothing left to give after the evening attack of the 7th. That evening, following coordinates, as well as the horrific stench in the air around the pocket, Lieutenant Frederick Tillman of Company B, 307th Infantry, led a patrol along the same wagon road Private Hollingshead had used not too long before. He had been part of the breakthrough earlier in the afternoon, and now they were cautiously looking for the perimeter of the pocket. Tillman found it when he fell into a foxhole in the evening gloam and a bayonet suddenly stabbed the earth next to him. Tillman frantically looked and saw that the defender of this hole, Private Robert Pooh, wore a Brody helmet. He quickly de-escalated things and told Pooh that he was looking for Major Whittlesey. More American soldiers led by a Captain Stone arrived on the road and they quickly spread out amongst the lost battalion men. Medics started treating the wounded, and there were many. The others gave out cigarettes and whatever food they had on them to the starving soldiers. Lieutenant Tillman later said, quote, My God, it was pitiable. Those fellows had been through a hell that made our drive through to relieve them seem like a pleasure excursion. It was evening of the sixth day. They had been there, and they were madmen. Their surgical supplies had run out the second day, and we found their wounded all gangrened. The men sat and stared with drawn faces, burning eyes, tense jaws. We sent runners for dressings and food, but couldn't get any appreciable amount through till morning. My men had been marching on iron rations and had precious little left in food or tobacco, but they gave it all to the other fellows. The sheer horror of that strip of hillside is unimaginable. The stench was unbearable. Bits of flesh, legs, and arms, parts of bodies were all about. The hillside in their position had been literally blown to pieces. There was hardly a spot that had not been struck. End quote. Private Pooh dragged himself over to Whittlesey's command hole and then mumbled to the major, Sir, there's a Captain Stone on the road with a patrol and he wants to see you, sir. Whittlesey didn't catch all of what Pooh said and figured it was some other of the million things he needed to check on or approve with the position. I'll see what this is all about, he told McMurtry. McMurtry sat in the command hole and re-ran Pooh's message through his head several more times. A captain on the road. What? Wait, a captain on the road? McMurtry knew what that meant. And it was the sweetest word in the world. Relief. It was, indeed. Private Nell recalled, Sometime after dark I heard someone moving and passing close by. Several were moving from my right. Then someone came back by, going in the other direction. I thought to myself, What is up now? Another attack by the enemy? I heard someone moving and talking in a low voice to my right nervously waiting. When they got up close, I whispered to him, What's up? He replied in a low whisper, Relief has come in on our right, and more is coming in behind them. Well, I could hardly believe that it was true, and it was not long until everyone was whispering it to each other. It was like being reborn. It was not long until the incoming boys were sharing what little rations they had with us. It felt like we had been saved from death. 
hanging on by our last string of hope. End quote. McMurtry went off to the right to look for Whittlesey. He found him on the road with other American officers. Whittlesey was stuffing a steak sandwich he'd been given into his mouth. McMurtry was given the remaining half when he asked Whittlesey for a bite. More and more men entered the area, and word spread through the pocket that relief had finally come. To avoid pulling guard in the charnel house of bodies and parts of bodies, Lieutenant Tillman wisely suggested setting up a new defensive line further uphill. The relieved Major Whittlesey and his men would be allowed to sleep free of any duties that night. They more than deserved it. Against all odds, against all standards of human endurance and even of reason, they had held out. A message had been given to the German army, delivered by Major Charles Whittlesey and the worn-out survivors of his command. In the words of the late, great, and fictional Jimmy Darmody, I will paraphrase what the men of the so-called Lost Battalion would have explained to the Germans if they had had the chance. I think you'd agree that we own Charlevoix Ravine now. The cost was terrible. Of 694 men who settled into the Charlevoix Ravine on October 2nd, only 194 could walk out on their own on October 8th. The rest were killed, wounded, or missing. On October 8th, Charles Whittlesey was promoted to lieutenant colonel on the spot in the ravine when Major General Alexander came to see the relief operations. Within weeks, he would be on his way to the States with orders to build a new regiment for service. A Medal of Honor would follow just after the war ended, pinned on him in Boston Commons on Christmas Eve. Captains McMurtry and Holderman would also be awarded the Medal of Honor. Lieutenant Red Cullen, one of the few officers left standing and a lion in his sector, would earn the Distinguished Service Cross. For the Charlevoix Ravine, the fighting had ended. The front line pushed north as the American drive through the Meuse-Argonne continued. The war itself wasn't over yet by any means. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.